0: Welcome to Organized Crime and Punishment, the best spot in town to hang out and talk about history and crime, with your hosts, Steve and Mustache Chris.
1: Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up.
0: You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks,
1: John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010.
0: Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. I want to welcome everyone back to Organized Crime and Punishment. This time... It is just me, Steve, uh, here. Uh, We don't have mustache, Chris, but I am very excited to be joined by Professor Diana Ricard, who is an associate professor in the Department of Social Sciences, Human Services, and Criminal Justice at the Borough of Manhattan Community College, uh, which is part of CUNY. And she is the author of another book, Sex Offender Stigma, and Social Control. But in particular, today, we are going to talk about her latest book, The New True Crime, How the Rise of Serialized Storytelling is Transforming Innocence. It's a fascinating book. And I think maybe the, the uh, how we can start this out is maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe where the genesis of this book came from.
1: Oh, I'm... Very actually excited to talk about that because um, it came from my interest in wrongful conviction, which actually came from a personal connection of a family member of a friend of mine and an interest in where wrongful conviction fits into different concerns in criminal justice or criminal justice reform or criminal justice issues. And I kind of had trouble as a researcher finding where my place was in the conversation, in part because there's so much good journalism. Like as an academic and a scholar, it was hard for me to find what I could contribute when there's, you know, the Innocence Project has um, offered so many important case studies and analysis. And there's so much really good stuff out there if you if you look. And in that search, um, I just became aware of these amazing documentaries and I and more and more people were mentioning them to me Um, in my introduction to the book. I I talk about how people kept telling me I should listen to Serial. I should listen to Serial. And when I um, saw Making a Murderer in December of 2015, so quickly there was a huge outcry. In response to that, I knew I had something here about the synergies between entertainment, wrongful conviction, true crime, journalism, news, you know, popular culture. And um, that's how I got started.
0: In this podcast, we're really trying to not follow the standard true crime genre that we're trying to inject it with looking at it historically and maybe trying to be a little bit more objective. And I wonder, uh, is it possible? This is one of the things that you brought up, and it's it's always been in the back of my mind, is it, it can you be entertaining and objective at the same time? Do you have to create a narrative which by its whole definition has to have good guys and bad guys, protagonists, antagonists?
1: So I don't think I I don't think being objective and being entertaining are necessarily in conflict. But what the reason I chose the specific series I focus on is because they open up the problem of perspective, of point of view. And I'm really fascin- fascinated by how they destabilize what is truth. And they make us question who has the authority over truth. So I chose only cases. I did not choose documentaries that covered cases where the person had been exonerated. So the I chose to look at documentaries where the journalists or entertainers, because it is these are absolutely acting as entertainment, um, question the official outcomes and unpack those in a way that raises so many questions. And a lot of people come away from these convinced that the person is guilty, convinced that the person is innocent. But what these series have done is explode our sense of faith in, in the certainty of these verdicts. So I think even, you know, the a lot of these are criticized for for not being objective, or definitely for, you know, excluding this response that the prosecutor had, or not talking to this person, or sensationalizing this person. Um, but the other thing they do is they also make us aware of those things. You know, so I don't think any of the filmmakers or that Sarah Kennig of Serial would say, Oh, yes, I have the final word. And this is, you know, the complete, objective, definitive truth or version of the truth.
0: What do you think with, um, in our society? It, you discuss it and it's something that I've definitely seen. I've seen it in very stark terms, the schizophrenia that we have with crime. I, uh, I'm a teacher by trade and my first job out of teaching school was teaching at a maximum security prison. And we would have a movie day and we were watching, uh, you know, a standard, uh, uh crime film and they were all on the side of the police and i think that that's something that in a, as of probably america i don't know outside of america but we can just focus on america we're both want to be tough on crime but we also don't want innocent people to get railroaded how do we put those two ideas together
1: um so the, the word you use, schizophrenia, I would call more ambivalence and conflict and, you know, our kind of warring sentiments and, um, and also how we can be led to sympathize with different characters. You know, again, getting back to whose perspective we're looking at. Um, I I teach this issue. I was just in my class the other day discussing what we call the crime control model versus the due process model, which is get the bad guys at whatever cost, or worry about the civil liberties of the defendants, even if that that means, you know, tying the hands of prosecutors. And you know, I think I think we have to look at these things both, uh, you know, an individual case-by-case basis, but also what I encourage my readers to do, or I hope they take away, is look at the broader cultural context. Because, you know, right now, our um, political, you know, right now we see these conflicts between politicians that are running on law and order and politicians that are running on on racial justice. And um, the way we understand the individual issues are also being framed in this broader issue.
0: Yeah, I think so. I, yeah, I think you're really getting to something there. That it's those two ideas, at least to me, don't have to be completely separate. You can be tough on crime, but also we have a system that's designed to be fair. Why did you pick the, these in particular? In
1: my um, second chapter called "The New True," I go over the criteria that I chose. Um, I'm calling these a sub genre of the true crime genre. So one reason I chose them, most of them are highly popular, you know, so they're culturally relevant because a lot of people have listened to them or watched them. You know, I mean, particularly making a murderer where, you know, Barack Obama was asked to weigh in and pardon him. And, you know, the response to serials unprecedented. Um, I like I said I chose cases where the outcome is left um, questioned, you know. But I I chose cases specifically where there was not an exoneration, you know, or a confession of you know the real killer. So you so people have to decide from for themselves. Um, I also chose uh, stories that were told over multiple episodes um, for a few reasons. I think this is part of a new way. That we watch stories and consume stories. Uh, for some reason, a lot of us have a lot of time to <laughs> watch TV. I mean, making a murder is a total of twenty episodes, but people are really interested in all of the details. And these um, these documentaries and you know serialized podcasts are much more complex than like the two hour feature documentary of twenty years ago on the same subject. You know, which would be the thin blue line, for capturing the freedmen.
0: Do you think that uh, people, as a general, as the audience, did people look at these uh, particular shows like Serial? Do you think that, yeah, they uh, Serial or the uh, the other ones that you covered? Do you think that they? maybe focused more on that particular case and did do you feel that people took that what you could learn from that and apply it more broadly to other cases where it because those were very high profile cases but it, i mean it happens every day where people can't afford a very particularly good lawyer or uh, they have lawyer uh, public defenders who have a gazillion cases and, uh, you know, have no particular time or sometimes even the skill to really crack a case or they have the, uh when I I uh, was, uh, for a short time, I worked for the city of Philadelphia and for people who were just slightly Not poor enough to qualify for a public defender. We would give them a list of at that time, $500 lawyers. And again, they maybe weren't Clarence Darrow's to put it uh, kindly. Do you think that uh, to to make a long question short, that these people that, um, the audience is focusing in on just this particular case, or are they able to analyze it to broader, more broad problems in the system?
1: Well, um, unfortunately, what, you know, I didn't do like a systematic empirical study, but I did spend a lot of time reviewing social media posts about these in in great detail. I have an entire chapter on um, basically Redditor's response to these. And unfortunately, I did find that most people champion, you know, Adnan Sayed or champion Stephen Avery and not as much discussion of the more um, systemic problems in the criminal justice system, as I would have liked to have seen, because all of these do bring up the issue that you bring up of, you know, underfunded defense attorneys and all of these, these cases benefit, like you said, they're high profile. So they benefited from the exposure that allowed them to have more resources put into their defense. But all of these series show um, problems with forensic forensic work. All of them show a lot of problems with policing and coerced confession. There there are abuses of prosecutorial uh, problems and Brady violations. And when you look at Redditor's response, In some ways, they're very, and I think most American viewers at this point are very sophisticated about their understanding of different aspects of criminal justice between all the crime news and, you know, all the trials we've seen on TV and all the shows that we've watched. um, You know, I think viewers are, are pretty well informed and they're on Reddit. There were, you know, very important Discussions about these things like Brady violations or bad forensic work. But for the most part, I did not see them applied in a bigger way, you know, other than, you know, this must be, this must mean, you know, Michael Peterson is guilty or this. Oh, one thing I did, I, going back to this idea of problematizing truth, one thing I did find is that a lot of people would say something to the effect of, you know, this person might be guilty. I'm not sure, but definitely the state did not prove their case. And th- to go back to what you were saying about due process or crime control, I think it's very interesting that a lot of people felt if the state didn't prove their case in a murder conviction that would, you know, mean someone going away for life, that um that takes precedence over there's a good possibility they did it, but It hasn't been proved by the government.
0: Steve here. We are a member of the Parthenon Podcast Network featuring great podcasts like Mark Vinette's History of North America podcast. Go over to parthenonpodcast.com to learn more. And now a quick word from our sponsors. Maybe we can take a, a quick discussion first, because I think maybe a lot of people aren't aware with what is a Brady violation.
1: Okay. Uh, thank you for asking. A Brady violation is when the prosecutor fails to turn over evidence that could possibly help the defense. So in our system, and and again, to go back to what you were saying about underfunded defense attorneys, the the government has a lot more resources to put into its case. And at the point in the trial that's called discovery, Like after the prosecution gets an indictment, which the defense is not there for that, that is just the prosecution going to a grand jury and showing the grand jury what they have and getting an indictment. Um, At that point, there's what's called discovery and the state is supposed to show their hand. They're supposed to say, you know, this is what we have. And they're also supposed to turn over things they uncovered that could legitimately help the defense. And the and that's called a Brady violation. And that has happened in most of the, the cases in these series that I watched. And um and that points to, you know, sort of corrupt or dirty playing prosecutors. And that it also points to the um, you know, the 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 big power differential. Between the prosecutor's office and the defense.
0: Now, Arthur. Generally speaking, I mean, this is hard to say, and like you said, it's uh, it's more of a uh, qualitative uh, investigation than a quantitative one. Would you say? I mean, to take it from uh, to try and be a, a maybe a ten thousand foot view. Do you think these Brady violations are? purposeful in the most part or are they just incompetent are they overlooking i um have have you seen and maybe if you take these case studies you looked at did you get the sense that they were just blatantly we're going to try and get get away with this
1: so um th- there's very there's a lot of really good good research that um th- this this book is is not just me watching these documentaries and and saying what i think there's there's a lot of research on on a lot of this and there's a lot of um understanding of what happens in prosecutors offices and the culture of the prosecutors office and most of what i've read it does not appear that overall this is happening because a prosecutor wants to lock up someone they know didn't do it um it i feel comfortable saying for the most part the the law enforcement and the prosecutor's office has some good faith that the person they are prosecuting did it. And so again, to go back to the crime control model, we have to catch the bad guys regardless. But what happens is when we have um, the larger culture and the political court culture organized around fear of crime, It gives the prosecutors and it gives law enforcement this excess of power to do that um, and a feeling of righteousness of of doing that. And then they're in these series that I watched. um, And some of them do show like conscious malfeasance of, you know, real bad faith actors framing someone. And I was thinking about this for your podcast, because I know your listeners are interested in organized crime. And in these series, the, the lens is pointed at the government. And if you haven't read it or seen it, The Innocent Man is very interesting. It was the only nonfiction work by John Grisham Uh, about, you know, uh, some wrongful conviction cases in Ada, Oklahoma. And in telling this story, they paint a picture of organized crime involving the prosecutor's office and the sheriff's office, you know, kind of being involved with the, the, the drug scene, you know, and drug dealing in this small town. And again, this is what I think is really interesting about these series is they force us to reconsider who are the good guys and who are the bad guys.
0: Do you think that in a way that the that true crime, especially true crime done well, can be a check on prosecutors and the the government?
1: So I think it, it could be in theory, but what you see, so these series. The other another reason I showed them is they the I chose these is they have different follow up episodes where you kind of see the consequences of the series on the case. So you do get um, prosecutors and law enforcement responding in some ways to what the documentarians did, and in these cases they are very defensive and angry. They do not say, "Oh yeah, you gave me something to think about there." Um, What and and so I don't know how uh, you know I don't I can't quite answer that question I th- I think it could have that effect Oh also um I I think the culture is changing towards criminal justice reform and towards a really critical look at all of these things and I was saying to someone you know Adnan Syed was released last year to great fanfare. And people attributed serial to that and Sarah Koenig's work. And she has not wanted to take credit for it. Um, one thing that happened in the time from when she made serial in 2014 is the legal culture in Maryland changed. And they have conviction integrity units and they had they changed their laws about juveniles convicted of life sentences or twenty getting 20 years or more sentences. And so... That is part of people in the system starting to take starting to look critically at themselves and starting to be responsive to constituents who want who want to be who want them to play more fair and look more critically at their power. So I think these series are part of that. But I also think the, these cultures of law enforcement and prosecute tor- prosecutors offices are, are really entrenched, you know,
0: maybe. and it feeds into that, but we can take a step back, or we can take a step back and discuss some of the problems with forensics, because forensics, things like DNA were promised to be, this is science, this is incontrovertible. What are some of the problems that have come up with forensics?
1: So DNA is considered, from what I know, it's considered still considered somewhat of the gold standard of scientific evaluation of evidence and the the DNA revolution in 19 in the late 80s early 90s when these tests became available into the criminal justice system is is the start of the the modern innocence movement because they were used to exonerate people who were on death row and that you know that's where the innocence movement uh, the innocence project steps in and got a lot of publicity for saying, hey, this DNA proves that person A could not have been the rapist. And this proves that this other person could have. Um, And very few things have that degree of of certainty. But what we see with the forensics in these shows is um, much more questionable and problematic uh, scientific analysis There's a lot about the inaccuracy of hair analysis, Um, you know, and if you watch, you know, shows like CSI, if you watch, you know, sort of television dramas, they put a lot of stake in things like hair analysis and blood spatter patterns Um, and, you know, bite mark analysis has like famously been disproven and has, you know, led to, you know, real miscarriages of, of justice, quite tragic ones. So in these series we we see those i you, less do we see any criticism of DNA it does seem to be you know um like i said that gold standard
0: it it does seem though that uh, the it's almost the prosecutor has to get a conviction. You can't have a, a high-profile murder and then just say, well, you know, we don't really know who did this, and, you know, we don't want to just convict somebody, to, you know, or we want to convict somebody. And sometimes, like you said, for the most part, they genuinely think that it's that person. But do you think that within prosecution offices that there becomes a group think that, yeah, most of the evidence does point towards this person and then it just, it takes on a, a life of its own.
1: Absolutely. This is called tunnel vision. What happens? It, what often happens? This is a generalization, but what often happens is early in the investigation, when they, when they, you know, with at the police stage, at the detective stage, they start focusing on one suspect as the likely person and what that does is just psychologically you know this confirmation bias comes in and they don't take seriously other possible leads and they you know just you know unconsciously maybe discredit these other things and they have this real focus on what they've decided is the right thing and so things that point in that direction become overemphasized and other leads aren't followed and in the and this is this is something we see play out in, in some of the series I talk about, you know, um, and the, and then the same thing happens in the prosecutor's office. The prosecutor gets a case from the, you know, from the arrest and from the detectives who, you know, and they and it expands from there, you know, the confirmation bias and the tunnel vision and and then also the defensiveness around that. And then also what you said about convictions, like, you know, prosecutors' careers are based on their record of convictions, not their record of, you know, due process, respect of due process.
0: It seems like such a big issue to reform, though, because you have... Big city police departments have a lot of crime and a lot of, you know, investigations that come in. So they have a resource issue. And then smaller departments, I mean, all the way down, have issues of resources and, and skill level. The big cities have a lot more skill in a way because they're getting a lot more, they have more, uh, practice, you might say, where the, s- the smaller departments have less practice with uh, with investigations of big crimes. Is there a way to fix any of this or to reform it in any way?
1: I believe there is. And not to point attention away from my book, but a few years ago, uh, the journalist Emily Bazelon wrote a kind of important book called Charged, that that looks at conviction integrity units and prosecutor pr- prosecutors offices and all of these issues. Like like I said, conviction integrity units um, were responsible at least in part for Adnan Syed's release. There definitely are ways of reforming it. Part, but but I think the one of the biggest obstacles is this sort of the the culture of conviction. Um, both convicting someone in the criminal justice sense, but also being sure in your convictions of who, who is and isn't guilty. What you said about these, um, outside of big cities, the skill level is actually something I, now that you're saying this, I think I didn't explore it enough. Other than a lot of these take place in rural areas with, um, with poor defendants, but also, the the law enforcement, you know, the law enforcement in a small town in Wisconsin is not the elite, you know. It or it, in the bigger landscape of the U.S. and it that that is that is really interesting. The sort of um, lower class dynamics. It, it's almost it, actually. I think I it, I didn't explore it that much, but I think I talk about conspiracy low because there is a way that some of these documentaries, the um, the story of malfeasance is related to these conspiracy movies that we also love, you know, the corporate conspiracy, political p- conspiracy parallax view kind of thing. but the the bad government actors are not those powerful elites. They're just like regular Joes.
0: Steve here again with a quick word from our sponsors. I saw an interesting uh, discussion that, in a way, it's a lot of small towns, their police departments are dissolving because the small towns don't have the resources anymore to to support a police department of even a couple of officers. And a lot of that power is uh, evolving or devolving, I guess, going up to county sheriff departments that have a little bit more uh resources and a little bit more institutional knowledge of these things and in some cases to state police departments and I guess it always has that push and the pull of localism is in a lot of ways good and then having a bigger picture is good do you see that that might help in these situations especially you've talked about some of those uh like in that one in um I, I'm totally blanking on the name, the one John Grisham did, uh, that it was a small town that was kind of corrupt.
1: Yeah. So um, one, I don't know if this directly answers your question, but in terms of the smaller budgets of local law enforcement, um, something of important aspect of this issue is when people are exonerated the state or the law enforcement officers are sued and owe restitution. And the more, this, the more DNA exonerations, the more critical focus on convictions is leading to more of these exonerations that are becoming very expensive. And I don't know if you saw Making a Murderer, but where it starts is that Stephen Avery was um, exonerated in 2003 for a rape conviction earlier um, and that that sort of corrupt local Wisconsin police force and there was a very expensive lawsuit where these officers were named and the argument is is that then for the neck that the murder he was charged with he was kind of framed by them and he had to um, he had to plea a settlement rather than keep his case going so that he would have money to defend himself. Um, against these new charges, so the cost of these exonerations is is a heavy, heavy burden. And there's also um, a series that came out, I believe, last year on Max called "Mind Over Murder." That really, did. You, um, I see you're nodding your head. It really looks at the, both the emotional and the financial cost on a, a very small community of you know having to pay for an exoneration.
0: Well, that is really interesting. That. In a lot of ways that civil litigation can help move these things. But then so often, I mean, it's vert, it's very difficult to sue a police officer civilly. There's a huge bar to get over qualified immunity. And I think it's virtually impossible to sue a prosecutor for prosecutorial misconduct. I mean, that's an even higher bar. Is there a way that because in a way they, you, Police and they need to be protected because they are kind of going out on a limb with these things, but also that's a lot of protection as well
1: right so um ag- agreed that prosecutorial immunity is a high bar police immunity is also a high bar and there's also a real reason that you do want some kind of immunity so that we don't have um, our police officers and our prosecutors being sued left right, and center. To to the point that they they can't do anything, but um, a lot of these cases can go forward, and the government has you know a duty to the community to to not do these abuses. So um, in terms of how some civil litigation has more teeth than others, I'm you know I'm not sure, but the the Stephen Avery case in 2003 had had a lot of teeth. He had a very very good case. And, oh, also because part of what it is, it goes back to the, um, the tunnel vision. In the Stephen Avery case, they turned away information about who turned out to be the actual perpetrator. And a similar thing happened in the case in The Innocent Man.
0: What do you think for some people for, um, if they wanted to ask your advice on how to make things this new true genre? What are some things that producers should really look for when they're doing cases like this? How should they design a program so that, you know, they can stay be objective and do something that isn't sensational, because a lot of true, true crime is very sensational. Like uh, doing this study, what are some big picture ideas you came up with?
1: Well, um, you know, the, these are all media products. You know, making a murderer is there to make money for Netflix. Uh, you know, the, these series have to be bought by, you know, these big entertainment you know companies that are are not going to buy things that they don't think people will watch so that is you know built into the batter um i think what i already see happening and what i would suggest is find new ways of changing up the formula you know so there's a podcast called murder in alliance where the journalist maggie freeling kind of, you know, starts with this, you know, wrongful conviction, innocence formula that we've seen, like she, she and her investigators are going to go out and, you know, look at this case of this person who was convicted, you know, with the idea of wrong stuff happened here, and we're going to exonerate them. And it kind of ends with her and her investigator thinking they were played, you know, and this person might have done it. And I thought that was very interesting. You know, like this is another version of the story. There are two series. So one of the things that is happening here that we see is in all of these, it seems like the filmmakers and the podcasters have uh, better investigative tools and capacities than law enforcement did. So this is an era of the citizen sleuth. This is the era of an average person who is not a trained criminal justice professional going out and figuring things out, you know, taking it into their own hands. Um, And related to that are these recent series I've seen both on Max, The Burden of Proof and um, Murder at Middle Beach, which are both um, young filmmakers who there was a murder in their past, a murder in their family when they were children, sort of taking the camera, you know, along these lines and trying to solve the case, which involves trying to get their dads to commit, you know, confess to a crime on camera. Um, But so these are, you know, these are new iterations of the true crime genre, you know, um, solving a case or Um, criticizing the criminal justice system. There's also something that has not gotten a lot of attention that I refer to in my book is I highly recommend people watch Free Meek on Amazon Prime, which looks at a case. It plays with what we mean by innocent, because it looks at a case of someone who did commit crime, but who gets so caught up in these oppressive practices that have to do with with probation that get this fellow, this, you know, sort of successful rap artist more and more entrenched in the system. So how do we what is our system doing to people that are guilty that is that is beyond fairness, you know, that that victimizes the guilty people in a way that we don't want our criminal justice system doing.
0: What do you think about the democratization of Media where people can have a, uh, an independent podcast. There's YouTube and the other pro- services that are full of basically just a, a guy with a camera. And in a lot of ways, they're exposing a lot of things that are happening with the, the government and with the police. Do you, what are some of the pros of that? But what do you see as some of the cons of this, that they're not, on YouTube and places like that, they're not they don't have the big budget and they're not on the big streaming services. So they have more freedom to make some different choices. But then again, they have less checks on them as well.
1: Right. And I think the less the less checks and not being vetted is what the potential problem is there, because they can make claims that a journalist can't They can make claims that a prosecutor can't that, you know, they can say whatever they they want. If I went out and took a camera and started trying to unearth, you know, the the big mystery of the stolen bagel, you know, at my deli, I have I can do a lot of things that an investigator can't. I'm not bound by Fourth Amendment protections. You know, (laughs) I can go through someone's garbage. You know, I can go into someone's house without them, without a warrant. Um, so there, there are problems inherent in that. I, I do think it's also exciting, um, and I, I think that's what the draw is. Like with with Serial, after I don't remember a couple of episodes of Serial, someone from Adnan Syed's high school called up and was like, "I saw him that day. I was the girl he talked to." A witness came forward. You know, um, other people came up with evidence. The Adnan Syed's appeals attorney, the this case was covered in the HBO film, the case against Adnan Syed uh, by Amy Berg. The appeals attorney said, this was the first crowdsource investigation I had. You know, he had the benefit of a thousand, thousands of people going out and trying to solve this case. And so I, I think that stuff is exciting personally, but, you know, we definitely have to be Careful of it, and we also have to be careful of using that things to criticize law enforcement or you know criticize journalists because because they do have rules and regulations that are important for them to follow.
0: It's made me think a lot too about um, like citizen journalism where something happens and the person. Yeah, it's great if they can get a thousand people to call a police department to to complain but that to me you get you get all sorts who will call and they you know they might not always be the most professional in manner and it almost seems like you can you're almost encouraging law enforcement to build a bunker mentality that you know anything we do we're going to get a thousand people calling our office when we normally get two people calling in a day. I think it's good. It's bad. Are we just kind of back? You know, we always wind up in the same place with these new technologies and we're always just trying to figure out how to move forward with them.
1: I I don't know. I see I see the ways that it is that it is bad and dangerous and certainly you know we don't want police departments glutted with so many false leads and people thinking they've solved the crime that they that they can't do their job. Um but I also think people I I think it's exciting that people feel they they can go out there and they can contribute and they can find something find something out and but yeah, it does bring up those problems a lot. And it does make um, law enforcement and people trying to do their jobs very defensive. It does create that bunker mentality. It might be exasperating the us versus them blue wall that is part of the problem.
0: I, I think that people, if, if people are really interested in true crime and innocence and how how our system can be uh, reformed and look just even if you're not interested in those things, you should be because they're the, they're, they really are the topic of the day. I definitely highly suggest people go read your book the new true crime by uh, professor diana uh, ricard i i thoroughly enjoyed the book i wonder if um is there a, a series you're watching right now that you didn't mention in the book and you've mentioned a few but is there one that you would suggest that people as soon as they're done listening to this go and watch right now or listen to right now
1: well um this is, I, this is not a series. This is a book that just came out that is getting a lot of press and interest. I have not read it yet, but a Thread of violence by Mark O'Connell revisits a case in Ireland that, that sounds very interesting. Um, I'm not watching a series now other than the, the two that I mentioned, but I will say I saw a very funny movie called Vengeance with BJ Novak which kind of mocks the idea of an elite urban, you know, latte drinking podcaster going to a poor rural community and solving a crime. And, you know, it kind of takes the things that we're talking about to the next level in popular culture where it's, it's become actually a cliche. Um, But I look forward to the next true crime wrongful conviction documentary. And, and fortunately, people are always recommending things to me now because of this book. So um, I'll get back to you with the list.
0: Yeah, you'll have a lot of watching to do. I'm sure. sure. Well, I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on and discussing your book and discussing these really important issues of uh, uh, crime and law enforcement. It's a, It's a fascinating topic.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed this discussion.
0: You've been listening to Organized Crime and Punishment, a history and crime podcast. To learn more about what you heard today, find links to social media and how to support the show, go to our website, a to com. Become a friend of ours by sending us an email to crime at a to z history page.com. all of this and more can be found in the show notes we'll see you next time on organized crime and punishment forget about it